Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Zion's Finest. Lucky number 13. This is Kenny Brown. In this episode I'm joined by my two of my brothers, Matthew Scott and Samuel K. Um, what we're doing for this episode, so the title is, So You've Lost Struggle 1, Now What Are You Going to Do? Or, you know, some variation on that. And this is an idea that Matt had to talk about. So what happens with, what we have noticed with Shatterpoint is that the player who wins Struggle 1 is heavily advantaged to win the remainder of the match. And I think the reason why, there's obviously we've talked about this, just kind of the basic statistics of it, is that if you win struggle one, you know, you, assuming you have a 50% chance to win both struggle two and then struggle three, you've got a 75% chance total to win. Okay, so that all makes sense. But we wanted to break that apart more and talk about that, how that works. And if you lose, if you lose struggle one, as half of you will do when you play, um, f figuring that out, like how, how do we, is it possible to plan to lose struggle one and then be still be able to win struggle two and three? And we've seen Anecdotally, obviously, there's a lot of evidence that the player who's winning struggle one is winning the match, but there also seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence from some of our strong players that they are able to recognize that they're losing struggle one and then, you know, plan to win struggle two and struggle three. So that's what this episode is about. But before we get into it, first off, just some news. For those of you who are in the German-speaking world, we have a German podcast. It's called Bashuda Podcast. Um, Zach Zagluls, who's on who's on this podcast, is on the Slack, and he posted they've got their first episode up, and then they are going to be releasing their second episode. Should be releasing actually the same day that this episode, episode 13, is released, which is September 11th, which is really cool. Um, so it is in German. So, you know, if you don't speak German, you will not be able to understand very much of what's going on. But obviously, that is so awesome. We, when we were playing IA, there were, um, there was not, well, they were not German speak, well, they were, they spoke German, but there was um, some podcasts from our friends in Northern and Central Europe that actually were that did a lot to get us more engaged with the IA scene. So it's really cool to have that be happening with Shatterpoint. Momentous Struggle released this really awesome podcast on Padme that started a lot of discussion on the Slack. It's really interesting because players who've been playing Padme have been saying that she feels like she could be very strong with the Handmaidens. And I don't know if that is an absolute statement or a comparative statement in the sense of like, is she just really strong compared to what the rest of the Republic is bringing to the table, which obviously, you know, could very well be the case. Is she strong in that maybe her and Mace could be what Republic needs in order to win games? We don't really know at this point. Um, obviously we don't know at this point, but I would really encourage you to listen to that podcast episode. And think about that uh, in terms of if you haven't bought the Padme box, if you haven't bought the back, bought the Padme box and you're a Republic player, I would strongly encourage you to do so. If you are thinking about giving it a test run, you should do that. Okay, tournaments that are upcoming or events that are happening. So again, Black Dragon and Twin Falls is having their tournament. It's coming right up. I think it's actually this next week. It is this next week, September 16th. So if you're in the if you're in Idaho or close to Twin Falls, close enough to make that drive, it looks like it's going to be a really awesome event, and we will include a link for that in the show notes the, for the Facebook event. Demolition Games on October 14th is we are confirmed to be having our Zyfy tournament, so it's going to be a premier format tournament, and we will have some prize support, and it's going to be super awesome. I have created both. Well, 
if you're on Facebook, if you're in the Utah Shatterpoint group, there is a an event for it. We would love for you to indicate that you're coming so we can kind of know what we're doing with prize support. And obviously, if you're on the Slack, let, let us know that you'll be coming. I posted a link for it in the Utah events page. LVO, there has been a pretty big update on this. Okay, so unfortunately, with LVO, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get a premier format Shatterpoint event. They have indicated the organizers have indicated that just kind of, I mean, with the, the schedule and the calendar, it just doesn't seem like it's going to really work. So they're planning to do this, what it's called an after hours event. And really what it is, it's just kind of like a, a free play event. We are still going, I mean, like we are not going, it's not going to be a tournament or anything like that, but we're going to try and, you know, uh, well, we will be there and we are going to try and make it as, you know, fun and engaging of an event as possible. Maybe I think what would be kind of fun is just to track and see the things that are played and see how they do. Um, just, you know, kind of as like a, a very general meta gloss. So if you haven't bought, if you are planning to go to LVO and if there is another event for you to play besides Shatterpoint, I would strongly encourage you to get on the wait list for the after hours event. They should be opening up more seats once we can confirm the total count. If you're not going to LVO and we're kind of on the fence, like this was Will's comment um, on the Slack, is that he doesn't know if it's worth it to you know, go down to LVO, kind of incur the cost for all of that if you're literally just going to be playing in this casual play event, which I totally understand. Um, I 100% I understand that. And obviously, like, there's not going to be really anything else going on, likely. Um, although I, I have asked if it's possible for us to do something, but I'm very confident that's not going to be the case so if if it's just too much we totally understand that but obviously we would love for everyone to be there and if you are planning to go it would be awesome if you would let me know if you're going to be able to bring terrain so that we can um, staff more tables make sure you rate and review the podcast and respond to the social media prompt not the prompt but like a poll question that we have we're running after every episode i i will just say so the last one that we did before this last week um, so a week and a, a week and a half ago, I guess two weeks ago, by the time this episode releases was in response to what AMG should do if things are overtuned. And so this is, this is a really interesting question because I think a lot of people are coming at it from a lot of different angles. So I'm coming at it from having played FFG games almost exclusively, which meant I played IA, X-Wing, then Destiny. And for me, my sense of how things should be dealt with generally is through Carterata. I mean, because that's what what I've been used to. But there's a lot of ways, obviously, that AMG could approach um, balancing in the future. And obviously, like with AM, or with AMG, with MCP, I know that I, I know that it has taken kind of a variety of forms that it's got a restricted list. I think it's even got a banned list. Yeah, and so and also there's also been card updates and Carterata. So I mean, obviously, AMG shows that it's willing to kind of, uh, you know, They've also introduced set rotation and formats for cards too. Yeah, which is a great idea. And so, but what was interesting is that in response to the question by, I mean, everybody responded either card errata or no changes, which I think is, I think right now the proper response is no change. Let's wait till we get another probably six months of releases. That that might be too long, but um, depending on how many releases we get. But let, let, let's see how the meta develops over the next little bit, I think is probably the correct approach. But card errata, as opposed to ban list or restricted list, um, was the preferred format, which I think is probably the correct response for the community. Okay, so for new releases, we actually don't have anything new 
um, that is imminent, I we I can check with Matt and Sam in order. Yeah, to confirm the big that. thing here is that we have mini extravaganza coming up the fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth, which should be the same week after this podcast drops. Oh, um, the, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and that's where we're going to see the roadmap for the next foreseeable future. I expect oh, awesome. we're going to get a lot of very exciting news. So we may want to do a uh, follow-up episode to kind of talk through some of that information That'll as it be, drops. That will be yeah. awesome. So they'll also be drop, dropping lots of thoughts about character design and how we go about uh, trying to balance characters. So I think there's going to be a lot of really cool content besides just release schedule coming out that weekend. There were some hints. I was looking at some of the titles for the different panels and stuff that oh, they're going yeah. to talk about. I think that there are some hints for potentially new objective sets. I think there are some hints for formats. There, there's a lot of things beyond just box releases that I think we're going to learn um, just based off of how things are titled in the announcements. Um, could be totally wrong, but that that's what I'm expecting. Yeah, I can see that absolutely being the case. I also think that if you should get on the Slack, if you're not on the Slack, because the Slack is where we have, obviously, we love talking on the podcast. And it's really fun to be able to do this and have you listen. It is way more fun to have these kind of in real time conversations on the Slack, because there's a lot of pushback, a lot of different, I mean, there's a lot of very knowledgeable people, way more knowledgeable than me. And there is some really good pushback and opinions and perspectives in terms of what's good, what's good for the game. Like we all, we have different opinions on what we think the correct direction for the game is. Um, but it's a very, it's, it's just a lot of fun. And if you're passionate about Shatterpoint, get on the Slack. And as these things are going to be announced, you will have a lot of fun discussing them with us. I promise you. I'm that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to, I mean, we'd have the general idea as to what's going to be getting released soon ish in terms of we've seen, models and sculpts and things like that but it'll be really awesome to you know see see what like what the form of the next few waves is going to be as opposed to just the content okay for recent games let's get started i'm gonna go first because i think i can do mine the quickest i referenced it recently on the podcast that released just barely we ha so this this podcast we're recording pretty soon after the last one is released so the most recent game that i played was against Scott. I was running Ahsoka Dooku and he was running Vader Grievous. I won in two struggles and I just thoroughly controlled the board. I knew what I needed to do. And Scott with Vader Grievous has not yet, I think, really met his match in terms of someone who can push back or kind of control in the way that Vader Grievous just has so much weight that it's bringing onto that midline of the board. So I used Ahsoka and Dooku. I pushed them forward. Um, and I had Obi-Wan, you know, uh, able to contest control points in a way that prevented Scott from ever doing any big swings. Ahsoka and Dooku were honestly, I, I kept them forward as for Scott to attack them. And he rarely took the bait because unless you're really just going to commit a lot of forces to them, you it's very difficult to one shot them. I would say it's probably impossible to one-shot Ahsoka if you've got the force for her um, what's the matter too fast for you. And Dooku is similarly very difficult to take down. So I just aggressively pushed them up, had Magna Guards, Jango, and Obi-Wan kind of like in the midline, you know, protecting. And then did I have... Oh, I had B2s. B2s were... I tried them out um, just as a form of range, which they were fine. They, I actually... The only damage they ever got through was from their expertise chart. But it was two damage. 
you know, do damage is do damage. And so for, for us Republic players, that is, that's awesome. Like that's above, that's above the trend line. So even though I, I was not able to wound very many of his figures, just Ahsoka Dooku, man, like if you're, if Scott did not really know how to play against it, because once he was, you know, he's wounding people and I was still able to hold points and I, I was the one winning the war of attrition. He wasn't really able to swing that back. And so I think that I, I still think Vader Grievous is super, super strong. And, but Ahsoka Dooku has got some play and that made me very happy because that is very much my style of list. So uh, Matt, do you want to give us your recent game summary? Yeah, so uh, the last couple of weeks I've been playing around with the Mace Windu box. So Mace, Pawns, and Arf Troopers as a as a strike team. And then I paired him up with a couple of different things. Um, the the one strike, the first tri- strike team that I tried was Kenobi, Rex, and Clone Commandos. And then I also tried Anakin, Rex, and the 501st. And um, I've learned a lot of things. Uh, so this is this is my you know incredibly lukewarm take, but Mace is good. Um, Arf troopers are good. Shocker. Hans is fine. Yeah. But for a three point secondary, he is fine, and he does the job that he needs to do. Right. I I think I prefer the Kenobi variations. Kind of the conclusion that I have is that like Mace Anakin has legs, but it's very very strong spike activations so you're sort of you're gonna have some dead activations where you just can't do much and you can't contest the board and then you're going to have some really big activations when when anakin goes when mace goes and just planning around and cycling those right to line up into the struggles correctly is kind of the entire ball game i think kenobi is a little bit more consistent across the board and and i tend to prefer that style i think it's it's you know lower ceiling but is more consistent more reliable and you have more control over what you're going to do when and so yeah i i think that maze adds a lot of strong things for galactic republic uh i think there's a lot of opportunity there i i also learned in my very first game trying it what not to do against scott's vader grievous yeah um, where i got pummeled pretty hard and i lost pretty fast and so, and so, and a lot of that actually lesson is going to inform our main topic discussion today. So, okay, yeah, it's also, I mean, this is the case. Sam has talked about this. I do think the best pairing for Anakin right now is Dooku, uh, because like 100%. Mace, he's bringing, he's bringing all that force, um, and he's not using any of it or very little of it. I think that he is giving Anakin what he needs a little bit more than Mace is, because Mace, you always want to be shatter pointing him, and that's not. You've talked about this that Anakin is probably not the person you're going to be shatter pointing if you're going to need to be able to spend three force every time. Uh, but it is the case that you could just has like, I mean, you run Anakin snips and B ones or whatever. And then you run, uh, Dooku, Django, Magna Guards. I don't, I don't know. Like, I actually don't even know what that pairing is, but like that just gives, gives Anakin more of what he needs in terms of like close support, other bodies that can contest points. And then he can go out and be your hammer. Right. And so, because Dooku's yeah, damage absolutely. isn't awesome. So, well, and I think yeah. that just the separatist secondaries and supports, and oh, also yeah. Dooku, just do better at yes. a force point deficit. Like they, yes. they can just do their thing more effectively with Anakin eating your entire force budget. Yeah. Um, I do think that there's like you know you you touched on this. I do, I think that in a lot of cases, spending the shatter point on Anakin is a bit of a trap. Yes. And what I like about pairing him with Mace is that Mace 
sort of takes a lot of the pressure off of Anakin to be your hyper carry because yeah. you have another primary who can get work done, who hits really hard. You know, not, not that like Kenobi or other Republic primaries can't do that, but like their ceiling is just a little bit lower. Yeah. Um, and I think that like the the Anakin's abilities that in many cases are like you are spending force on him to kind of pull your panic ripcord when your dice don't spike. So you're sort yeah. of like, hey, I can spend force to guarantee. In some cases, if you get lucky, you're not going to have to spend that two force where I'm going to end this to yeah. close out a unit. And then suddenly you can afford to shatter point. But I think in most cases, like you kind of need to expect that he's going to be spending three force points. And if you're running Mace Anakin, I think that your shatter point is going to hit Mace most of the time, either so that if he, you know, if Mace is on his Mapod side, he can have an activation comparable to an Anakin one, or yep. if he's on his Jedi Master side, typically that's going to be he has gone early to just sort of conserve a point, and yeah. then you're shatter pointing him to get some Force refresh and to kind of enable you to do other stuff. So like, I think there's potential there. I just think that it becomes a little bit too dependent on the skill of piloting those two units and yeah. getting them lined up exactly where you want them. In yeah. a lot of ways, that's just harder to do if you don't have Kenobi in the list to help with your reserve cycling or, totally. or those kinds of things. You're a little bit yeah, more at the mercy of your activation yeah. deck. Yeah. I I think also, um, you know, we talked about how, like, Anakin's best pairing might not be Mace. It's probably Dooku. I think somebody else who might be really good with Anakin I haven't tried it yet. Is Cad? Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, um, you're you're getting force back whenever somebody's wounded. Yeah, like, you're getting yeah. more if it's a bounty hunter. But Anakin's going to be wounding people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that could that could be a really interesting. For I think I think Cad's a very finicky pro- piece to play. I think you're yeah. going to have yeah. a lot of the same troubles yeah. that you were talking about with the Mace Anakin. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's some, with something with Cad is that. Like he's only bringing those two force points, and yeah, everyone in that bounty hunter box is pretty force hungry. Yeah, and so it's very like you got to hit your break points, and if you don't, you are just gonna get punished real hard. It'd and be a real that's sad very panda. scary to me as as someone who is pretty good at rolling dice just low enough to miss break points. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So I actually, that kind of leads into my game. I didn't play Anakin. I did play against Cat. I played against Vince, who's a very strong MCP player. Played on TTS. He played Padme Cad against my Padme Dooku. It was a crazy close game. Like um, there was multiple times in the second round where um it was it was a crazy back and forth the struggle one was a crazy slog that i barely eke out and struggle two is a crazy slog that i barely lose because i get unlucky with priority rolls a couple of times in a row and then i was just out of steam by the third one i had lost both my secondaries and uh I could I couldn't control enough points with only four models on the board. Yeah. How did it feel? Like how did the CAD box feel to play against? CAD got wounded super early and he felt Ooh. like he did almost nothing. Like yeah. I wounded Ooh. him like second or third activation. However, okay. he made Django Fett awesome. So Vince <laughs> played a point down, um played Django Fett over Ara, which I think mm. might just be correct because yeah. Django Fett's absurd. Because Django's and, busted. Uh, you know, there's just I mean, some crazy stuff where it's like, uh, my Padme has one health. He has two force left. His Django's injured, but if he spends this two force, he ends up with four force from yeah. Django's thing and Cad Bane's refresh and he recovers. And just like, 
he was Django Fett was able to wound people. Bounty hunters seemed really solid too. That you know he was even though he had five force, he was probably getting seven to nine force around. Gosh, that's insane. Um, yeah, with that, that, that's why Cad was there for the refreshes. Other than that, Cad did very very little. Cad is interesting because uh, he's just one of those figures that as soon as he's injured and if he can't get his free jumps to get in position. Yep. He really hurts. Like, yeah. just kind of feels like a weight to your team as yeah. soon as he takes that first wound. Padme, on the other hand, was amazing for both of us. She was yeah. the all-star for both of us. Like, every time, I think both of us were like, okay, we need Padme here to score, like, four points because move Padme, blast somebody off, move some people into position. Yeah. Like, or, oh, my guys are um, wounded. Uh, I need Padme so I can move them onto the point. And take control so yeah um that was and it was uh you know i think vince played really well he did a really good job of playing to his outs which was grinding me out because yeah. like i had the like i had kind of like the the momentum for lack of a better word was on my side but if he could just make it to struggle three he was going to win yeah because so, your secondaries are down what were what were you running with dooku i was running uh ob2 and magnus interesting i mean that seems real good seems yeah good. it was yep. it was a sweet list it was fun um i need to give it another try i think there's some legs there but yeah i can see that um interesting 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 all right well with that being the case let's dive right into the main topic matt take it away okay so uh to tee this up i want to talk through what is kind of a famous um brain teaser slash mathematical problem you guys may have heard about it you may have not i'm going to set it up just for the benefit of our listeners in case anybody hasn't but it's called the monty hall problem um so here's the scenario um you're on a game show and the the way that the game show works is that there are three doors behind one of the doors is a prize that you want there's a car right behind the other two doors are goats and to clarify, you know, for your sake, Kenny, a goat is a prize that you don't want. And, you know, yeah. that may be confusing for you. Yeah. Um, Not on a farm, you yeah. want those goats. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, but you don't know which is behind which door. And so there are three doors. And the game show host says, okay, pick one. And you pick a door. Then the, the game show host is going to say, okay, these are the two doors that you didn't pick. And they're going to open one of the doors that has a goat behind it. And then they're going to ask you, do you want to stay with the original choice? You chose door A. I've shown you door C has a goat. Do you want to stay with door A? Or do you want to switch to door B? So uh, here's what I want to do. Um, Kenny and Sam, how, how familiar are you guys with this problem? Have you heard it before? I know. Yes. I, I know how this problem I, works. I, okay. So do I. Yeah. But I'll just say, so the one thing is, is, I don't know if you said this, but you don't know what's behind your door. That has not been That's revealed. Correct. The other door, yep. one of the other doors has been revealed. Yep. Yeah. So you pick a door randomly yep. or, you know, based on whatever hunch you might have, you know what is behind one of the doors you didn't pick and you have the option to choose between the, the two doors that you haven't seen what's behind there. So um, this is a problem that kind of was became infamous in the 1990s because it was published in some kind of a you know, newspaper somewhere where somebody wrote in and a statistician answered and 
thousands and thousands of readers, including many with PhDs, mathematicians wrote in to tell the original you know, person answering the column that they were incorrect. Um, the, the correct answer for this problem is that you always switch. And, and here's why. The, the intuitive way that your brain sometimes will process this problem is, hey, there are three doors. I've got yep. a one in three chance of having the right thing. Yep. I pick, okay, now it's a 50-50 chance. One of the two doors is fine, so it's 50-50. I'll just pick one of the two. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter which. Might as well stay, right? Yeah. I mean, However, the idea there is that you've got 50. It's, it's a 50-50, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what that doesn't account for is the intelligence of the game show host who is showing you what is behind a door. So regardless of how you chose in the first one, yep. they are they are intelligently selecting a door that doesn't have a prize that you want. Yep. And so rather than it being a 50, 50 odds, you're actually two thirds, you know, 66% in favor if you switch because, yeah. and, and maybe another helpful way to visualize this is if you change the scenario so that there are 100 doors and then you pick one yeah. and then the game show host reveals 98 of them that are bad. And then yeah. says, do you want to pick switch or not? Yeah. yeah, you have a 99 out of 100% chance to get it correct if you switch, right? Yeah, see, like, that that's, I think, the best way to illustrate that problem. Because otherwise, like, you're like, well, I'm, I'm not seeing why this isn't still a 50-50, right? But that right. shows you. Because the host is doing the work, in this case, of intelligently removing all of the chaff. Yeah. And so unless, so your first choice is still locked into the original probability. And yeah. then your the switch choice benefits from the intelligence of the host, right? So yeah. the reason I tee this up is to kind of, talk about this in terms of how we often have a hard time intuitively or mentally grappling with statistics and math and how those things actually come to the front when it comes to discussing things. And I bring this up primarily because there has been a much bandied about statistic around in the community that like, hey, whoever wins the first struggle wins the game, right? Yeah. In you know, and there, there, there are a lot of stores or local places are tracking this thing like, yeah, 90% of these games are being won. Yep. Today, what we're going to be talking about is that specific problem of like, okay, once you've lost struggle one, what do you do? How do you fight back against that? The first thing I want to call out for like why that 90% statistic might be misleading is, hey, again, just like the money hall problem, your brain expects a 50% win rate. They're like, you know, they look at a game, they say, hey, you know, we... We're playing a game. We would expect both players to have an equal chance of winning. But what that doesn't account for is the fact that one of the struggles has already been won. Yeah. One of the players has already achieved half of their victory condition. Yeah. Right? If yeah. it was a Euro game and you said, hey, we are halfway through the game and one player has scored 50 of the necessary 100 victory points in order to win, yep. and the other players have scored zero how often would you expect that one player to come out and win? The answer is yeah. most of the time, right? Yeah. If we were to strictly say, hey, all three struggles have an exact 50-50 chance of going to either player, if you then select for the group where, hey, the first player, the player that wins the first struggle, how often do they win? You actually expect that player to win 75% of the time, assuming a strict even flip, right? Because yeah, they right. have 50 a 50-50 50. 50 win the second and a 50-50 yep. to win the third. And yep. the player yep. that didn't win the first struggle has to win both, whereas yep. the first player only has to win run. Exactly. So, first of all, so you're anchoring statistic for how often should the player that wins the first struggle win the game should be 75%, not 50. 
couple of other things to think about. One is that aggressive strategies, proactive strategies will always, always lead out when you have a developing metagame, right? Yeah. So in order for a reactive or a more control-oriented strategy to, to work, there needs to be kind of a baseline of like, here's what the proactive strategies are doing in the metagame so that they can plan to disrupt that. And we are pretty early in the game's life cycle. You know, it's been out for what, three months, four months at this point. Yep. And so I think that we start to see some proactive strategies come to the forefront. We, and we're still workshopping some solutions for, okay, how do you reactively, you know, from a more control oriented perspective, deal with that? Yeah. And then I think the final thing that's worth thinking about is that like, hey, playing from behind is a little bit more skill testing than playing yeah. from ahead. Yep. And those later game strategies, you just have less experience with. And so we're all still learning the game or we have not figured out the tips and tricks entirely for like, what do you do in these situations in order to maximize your odds? Yeah. So all of that is to say winning the first struggle is still very good, right? Yeah. Um, in, in general, winning a struggle is preferable to not winning a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Shocker. I, I, there's some hot takes here, but <laughs> that said, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, well, we should just give up on the game after the first struggle or yeah. okay. Like the game has been decided because I think there's a lot more nuance that's going on here. Yeah. And so really what we want to talk about today is how do you plan for those strategies or for those situations where things don't go as planned? You you've lost the first struggle. Um, and here's where I'm going to tee up an immediate bait and switch, which is in order to, uh, to plan to win the game after losing the first struggle, you kind of have to start during the first struggle thinking about that. Yeah. Um, the basic scoring tempo of the game, and if you've played more than like a game or two, you're very familiar with this. The first scoring player, which is the second player in the first struggle, and then whoever lost the previous struggle after that, just has a base scoring tempo advantage because they get to score first. Yep. So in most cases, the struggle token's being pulled to their side, you know, two or three, and then it's being pulled back towards the center line by the other player. So if you're not the first scoring player, you need to build up about two points worth of advantage in order to just even the playing field, right? The catch-up mechanic is such that the player who lost the previous struggle or who lost, and by that I mean won the first player role, is, is adding native disadvantage that then has to be overcome, right? Yep. And what's tricky is because there's an odd number of struggles, what that means is if you win the first struggle, okay, you're disadvantaged in the second struggle, but then you gain that advantage back in the third struggle, and so you yep. get to have that during the final struggle that's left. Yep. Right? And that's something that you just kind of have to fundamentally understand in order to approach this. And then the real question that comes in, and I've referenced this previously, is who is the beatdown? Yep. So different lists have different strengths. Yep. And part of what you need to do when you sit down at the table at the very beginning is assess like, hey, what is my list good at? What is yep. my opponent's list good at? And how are things going to go if I just opt into like a straight up like toe-to-toe -to -toe brawl, right? Yeah. Like if you're playing Vader or Magna Guards or other units that are really durable, they're really mobile, they hit super hard, congratulations. Uh, you're the beatdown. You're in yeah. great shape. Yep. Your job is to proactively go out, stand on those points, you know, twirl your lightsabers and say, come at me, bro. Yep. Right. Vader Grievous um, is like the perfect beatdown list, right? Like it wins exactly. the war by wounding <laughs> frequently. 
Yeah, it is it is the best list in the game that we are aware of at doing that thing where it's like, hey, I go stand on points, I can yep. take hits, and then I can hit back hard, and yep. I and in just a straight up brawl, the the numbers are gonna favor them, right? Yep. If you're a sad clone player like me, you kind of have to assess and say, hey, I'm not gonna win a toe-to-toe brawl, at least in yep. the short term. Yep. And that means that you can either choose to seed ground somewhere on your own terms in order to try to build up an advantage somewhere else, or your opponent is going to force you to seed ground on their terms, right? Yeah. Whether that's points, whether that's attrition, whether that's both. And as much as possible, we want to be leaning into the former strategy where if we can't win a straight up fight, uh, we want to be leaning in towards saying, okay, I'm going to choose what I'm willing to give up in order to get what I want. Yeah. If you're the player who is a little bit more proactive, your job is to press that advantage and force bad decisions for your opponent as much as possible. Yep. Yeah. And I think that the most common mistake that we run into here is that the game really, really encourages you to just get into the fray and yeah. go toe to toe. And I think that's part of what we see is that like the lists that are doing really well are the ones that are good at that. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is important to think about in this context is if you fight for an objective and lose, because of how momentum scoring works and because of how kind of attrition and wounding in the game works, yep. that is just strictly worse than doing nothing, right? Yeah, you're yeah. expending if, resources, right? Yeah, yeah. If you if, if you just stand in the back line and you don't contest an objective, sure, your opponent doesn't have to do anything in order to claim that objective, but you also haven't given them a momentum for wounding your units, or you haven't yeah. given them the opportunity to deal damage to limit, you know, tax your resources down the road. There is technically a kind of like action economy tax that, is, that comes into play where you're sort of saying like, hey, if I'm going to go stand on a point, I'm going to force my opponent to have to do something in order to take it from me, as opposed to just having free reign of the board. So that, that is a real thing. Yeah. However, in... In most cases, I think that deficit is more than overcome by just the opportunity to say, like, hey, I'll contest a point, push you off of it, and then also put some damage on your dudes, right? Yeah. Like, that yeah. is worth it. Yeah. And so part of how you have to think about how you approach your objectives, is, especially if you're kind of on the back foot in terms of the brawl in the first struggle, is what what can I contest? Where can I hold an objective or where can I constrain my opponent's options without giving them just a points pinata to slap. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I think it's important to like when you're thinking about this to realize that, you know, like one of the, the things we talked about clones, we, if we shove them up to the middle point, they'll just immediately die. And then you're essentially giving them two points. The point yep. for yep. the momentum and the struggle point. Exactly. However, when you're thinking about putting them up there, maybe something that I've been trying to think about more is like, okay, maybe I don't go to the wide open spot that's on the same elevation as that objective. Maybe I instead am an elevation below it, but I'm hiding behind cover. So they cannot yeah. see my model and they can't get a melee attack off. Or maybe I am up higher than the objective. And, you know, so just some way to disrupt their opportunities to attack while still forcing them to come steal that point from you. Yeah. Right. I so will, you're, yes. You're you're cutting that momentum point that you would be giving them by just putting them right by the objective where they could slap them with you know, their grievous with three extra dice. Yeah, I that's, love that that's a great observation. I think that a big part of what you have to be thinking about in this game, and this is 
regardless of whether you are ahead or behind, you know, whether, whether you are advantaged or disadvantaged in this particular kind of initial scrum is how much can you take while limiting your opponent's options for reprisal? Yes. There is a very real value to just owning a point, right? Because, but by owning points, you are sort of requiring your opponent to do something in order to flip them back. And in some cases, if you're like, okay, well, I've got two points secured. I can't really do much anything else. I'm just going to attack randomly and try and get some chip damage in. The problem then is you're flipping the, you know, the initiative back over to your opponent where they can say, I control three points. Now I can go fight for a fourth. Yes. And that can snowball and get out of hand. And so you, I, I think that part of where I really love the design of Shatterpoint is that all of these things are really, really nuanced, right? You, there is constant pressure to be doing 87 different things all the time. Yep. And you, and you really have to be thinking through what can I accomplish this turn? How many points can I score this turn? And also how practical is it for me to expect those things to project forward into the future, right? I think that it, it's a really, really common mistake, you know, because you're like, hey, uh, I I love the Star Wars movies. I want to play with some clone troopers. I flipped up my clone trooper first, and hey, look at that. I'm the first player. I can control three points with these guys, and they're going to yeah. move forward to the center line and flip, and then suddenly my opponent's in a bad spot, and then your opponent gets to go with their Magna Guards, and they slap your clones upside the head, and wound them and then take two points from you and you're really sad and not only have you not scored any points or or and have seeded all of that board advantage but also you've got a wounded unit on the table yeah and so like so much of the the complexity of the game arises from sometimes i think making a measured choice to contest for less uh right now or sometimes even to just say like you know what as great as it seems in the short term to score these points, I think it's just a bad activation in the long run, and it's time to just reserve them and try to hope that I can pull something better, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I, and I think that one of the things that happens a lot, and that I think is happening a lot in the game right now, is there are a couple of different axes on the game that you sort of qualify as, like, advantages in board state, advantages in the game, right? So you you have a strict, like, I'm ahead on points, right? And that's the most valuable one, but it is also the most fickle one because the the points, possession, changes every struggle, momentum tokens are very fleeting. Those things change the most often, but that's also that's the only way that you win the game, right? But you can build up advantages in attrition. So I've dealt more damage or I've wounded more of my opponents than they have me. And that constrains their options because maybe they have to choose to shatter point a less effective unit in order to get them activated in contesting points. Yep. Or maybe they, you know, they would like to be able to contest this point, but their people are wounded and they just don't have the option, right? So there's an advantage yeah. there. There's also a way to build up an advantage in positioning where you're sort of prepping for the future and how things are going to flip. One of the things that I think is happening a lot right now, and some of this I think is just the lack of really complex kind of late game or reactive strategies just in the pieces that have been released. And some of it I think is just experience in the game. But often it is the case that the player that wins the first struggle is winning the first struggle, not only from a scoring advantage, but they have advantages in every other part of the game state that matters. Right. And Sam has done this to me a bunch of times where it's like, Hey, 
I tried to go toe to toe. I lost. So I'm, I've lost the first struggle. I'm behind on sco scoring tempo. I'm behind on attrition because he's dealt a lot more damage. My units are out of position or they're awkward. When you get to that place, you have kind of already lost and it's just about yeah. bleeding out slowly. Yeah. If you don't think that you can win the toe to toe struggle, then what you need to do is either choose to accept a scoring deficit now to try to build up an attrition advantage, or you can try and, you know, try and win out on scoring by sacrificing some of your attrition to try to rush out an advantage that you can then claim later on. Yeah. And that's where I think the game gets more complicated. I think that second option is not as viable in Shatterpoint, at least we're not right now, as it is in you know, Marvel Crisis Protocol or some other games where you can really play to like rush out scoring points. Yeah, I think but there I think are some there's a lot of... lists that are better at it. You know, mm -hmm. like, I think, I think this is very list dependent on what you want to try and do if you're down. Like, let's say you're a Dooku Grievous list that has lost the first struggle. Your list is going to be good at rushing out points. You know, like that's kind of what, what you're built to do. And yeah. so you're going to want to try and do that. Whereas if you're the the clones list or the CAD list, you probably want to grind out an advantage. You're you're playing for a longer game, try and make your, to, your, your value comes over time. You're giving out conditions from coordinated fire that don't have immediate impact. You need a long game to make it yeah. so your abilities are impactful. Great so point. you're... Those is particularly kind of want to grind out. Whereas if you're behind and you're and you're the, you know, and you have the Magna Guards that are trying to score real quickly with all their their shoves, score in the immediate. Maybe you should be trying to rush. Yeah, and I've been experimenting with this quite a bit in Galactic Republic because I think you're absolutely right, Sam. Like I think that Republic is the keyword in this game that is really built around this idea of like grinding out a longer victory kind yeah. of over marginal advantages built up over time. And I think that the problem they often run into, especially right now is that they, you know, inadvertently turn themselves into points pinatas that allows your, uh, your opponent to accelerate the pace of the game. And so the, I mean, the, the cleanest way that I can summarize this is like, if you're the first player, and if you're playing Republican, your opponent is playing, you know, Separatists or Vader Grievous or whatever. Um, because your opponent has a tempo scoring advantage, your job is not necessarily to try to win the first struggle, but your job is to try to lose the first struggle as slowly as possible and to tax your opponent as much as possible for the privilege of having that scoring advantage. So you make them sort of get hit first. You make them move to the center line you know, in most cases, not in all cases, but you, you force them to move to the center line so that you can hit them first. And maybe you can't totally push them off the points, but if you can keep control of, you know, two of the five points in the first struggle while pushing out some real damage threats and kind of blunting their ability to accelerate things, and most importantly, blunting their ability to score extra momentum from wounding your units... You're actually in a pretty good place because if the struggle token is sitting on their side of the board, but they can't close it out, you can actually leverage the free momentum you get every single turn from failing to bring it back to your side so yep. that all you have to do is bring it over to a one and you can do that before your opponent can you know score at the four or the five on their side of the track. Yeah. 
you you're playing with time is the idea, right? Vader Grievous wants to hit you super fast. They want to get at you super fast, and and you are playing. It's obviously you're you're still like you're leveraging the smaller things that you're able to do now over the long game. I'm not totally convinced that this works, but like if it's gonna work, this is going to be how, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't because you can't win the scrum. You cannot win yeah. the scrum. It's a much yeah. more finesse oriented style of play, and I think I'm still figuring it out with mixed success. But I do think that there's opportunity there once those skills get developed, right? Yeah. When Kenny is saying you cannot win the scrum, I think it's important to clarify. You're not saying that you can't win the first struggle, right? You're just saying no. that, like, you're you're, you you're cannot... just not winning the initial cross cross of blades. Yeah. So you, you must you... do something to slow down the tempo. Yeah, you exactly. will not win if, like, the idea is like I'm going to hit you with Grievous, and I'm going to hit you with Obi Wan, and then I'm going to hit you with Magna Guards, and I'm going to hit you with you know the five zero first. You are going to lose that that damage trade, right? So, like, that's the scrum. That's what you can't win. So, the idea is like taking Obi Wan's uh, damage mitigation advantage, your range, and trying to leverage that with time. You have time if your figures aren't getting wounded, and they're not going to be wounded if you're not pressing them up and giving the melee guys targets, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing that I think is really easy to miss is how the, um, I want to say momentum, but that's a bad term because it's an actual game term. So I'm going to say how the inertia of a matchup goes when the struggle flips, right? Yeah. So like, I think that it's really common where it's like, oh, I've, I fought for the first struggle. I lost. I'm feeling really frustrated about that. I'm feeling behind. And so like, I've really got to get in there and like push really hard to reclaim an advantage before it snowballs out of control. And I think that's an impulse that's sort of built up from playing a lot of other games and just from a general sense of like, I can feel the game slipping away. But what you have to remember is that the scoring tempo very suddenly flips to your benefit once you lose the first struggle. Yep. Once that happens, you're scoring first and you get to choose the battlefield that you fight on. Exactly. You immediately have a very strong advantage. And in most cases, you are still going to win the, the second struggle unless you have gotten so far behind in the first struggle that there's nothing you can do about it. Yep. And what I think is important to recognize is like rather than suddenly pushing really hard to try to like catch up a, that loss in tempo, what you need to do in that second struggle is leverage that scoring advantage that you have. You You want to make safe plays. You want to, again, slow the game down and try to leverage the fact that you have a scoring advantage to build up an attrition advantage or a positioning advantage across the rest of the board. Yeah. Because and and if your and if your opponent wants to try to force out and win the second struggle, you want to force them to bear the cost of making those big plays. Exactly. You want to you want to tax them for doing that or you want to take advantage of the time and the fact that you don't really have to work super hard to win this struggle to try to set up cuz you're effectively not playing for struggle two anymore you, you you are playing under the assumption that you will win struggle two and you're playing for struggle three and you are forcing your opponent to change your mind about that fact yep exactly exactly yeah that's what vince did really well against me in this game is i decided hey i'm gonna go and try and win struggle two i had i had some reasonable belief that i could do it um, you know, that I was like, I can lock down a point essentially forever with OB2 so that I mm-hmm. always have one of these on lockdown. Um, the, he didn't get the, a good flip for him when he picked a struggle. So it was like, 
half of these are already under my control. Well, two thirds of them are already under my control. So like, I'm going to try and force this. That forced me to make big plays. And when I came up just short, because the dice didn't break for me, I had exhausted all my resources. So I had nothing left for struggle three. Yeah. And so if, if you can like shut down, if you can make the other person push into you, take those risks, I really think that that is the path to winning two back-to-back struggles of two and three. Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing you have to be thinking about is you are going to lose that scoring advantage and give it to your opponent going into the third struggle. And so you have to build up enough of an advantage, but over the course of the first two struggles, the one that you lost and then struggle two that you've won in order to offset the disadvantage that you are seeding because your opponent is you know, able to score first and choose the battlefield for that final confrontation. Um, so we've talked about general theory. I hope that that general idea is pretty clear. And I think the thing to be thinking about most specifically is it's really hard to get out of the mindset of playing to optimize how many points I'm going to score during this turn and, and to kind of heads up focus on, you know, the near future or even the far future in the game and how you're building up an advantage there. But the reality is, is if is if you're behind and you're not doing that, you're just going to, you're more likely than not just going to lose. Right. And so you have to be, once you're behind, in Shatterpoint uniquely, you kind of have to play the long game because the game is is built in opportunities for you to play towards that. And if you try to win fast, you're going to give your opponent opportunities for them to just take advantage of you. Yeah. Having covered the general theory, let's talk about some more concrete tips. I have a couple that I've locked down. They might be a little bit controversial, so I'm curious to see what you guys think. And I think that you're... I would love to hear kind of what thoughts you guys have on this as well. My first one is maybe the most unusual, but that is if you're the first player, unless you are super, super confident that your list is going to be have an advantage in the initial scrum, I think contesting the center point B2 is just a trap. It's really easy to sort of look at that and say, hey, well, that's by contesting the center point, I can flip two objectives. But the problem is that the center point is the only one that with the standard deployment is accessible to every single unit in the game. This is a great point. And so like, I think that to Sam's point earlier, there are some exceptions where, you know, maybe you can sort of contest from a lower elevation or behind cover. Like maybe there are some opportunities to fiddle with that a bit. Um, But often when you can test the center point, especially as a first player where you don't get to score it, that can set your opponent up for some big advantages when they already have an advantage in seeding that ground. Yeah. Or in claiming that ground. Yeah. So this is, um, I think that, Generally, if you have, I, I generally have been playing with this idea the more I've played, especially when you have like, when you activate a one character unit first, like I always go to one of the sides because I know that like 50% yep. of the time you won't be able to take it. The, I do think that there is a, um, I think it's really match and I think Shatterpoint is a very much like, it's hard to have hard and fast rules. These are more Absolutely. just general guides. I yeah. think there is there is a legitimate pressure that can be added with your two character units that perhaps you're losing some of why you brought them. If you don't um, fight for two with your very first activation, if you get two of them. That's correct. Um, Yeah. 
and yeah. to me, and a lot of my perspective on that, I think, is shaped from the fact that I have mostly played Galactic Republic, where the clone troopers just have absolutely zero game when it comes to being able to meaningfully contest those. I think if you're playing Mandos or if you're playing Magna Guards or other, or B1s or other units that have a little bit more game when it comes to standing on a point and saying, I'm going to force you to pay a cost to push me off. Yeah, I think that there's a lot more opportunity to apply pressure there. So like to your point, I think it's very, very context dependent. Yeah, I would also say, so this is actually something that Will has been talking about running Vader Grievous, is even though he is kind of running the beatdown list, he says that he rarely goes to contest the center line for this reason. He's like, I think it's probably better, even if I'm kind of the beatdown, like there's no reason that I need to expose myself when I can just slowly continue to apply pressure on the wings and then then kind of swing in in order to, like both of these units, Vader, um, Vader OB2 and Magnus, and then Grievous, Django, and B2s or uh, Fifth Brother, those two groups independent are able to do the thing that they need to do in terms of like winning their particular scrums. And there's no reason to commit four or five units to this middle line, especially when that middle objective is not going to be active in the final game at all, or I'm sorry, in the second, the second struggle. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's fair to point out that like, Hey, I think, you know, arguably the strongest like first activation in the game is a Kalani, like push a million droids forward to contest points. Right. And you are creating a very real kind of a pressure there by claiming all of those points. But you can do that because you have units that are durable enough that it's going to require significant investment from your opponent to be able to push them off. And effectively, in that scenario, what you're doing, you're saying, I'm controlling my backline point. I'm going to contest and gain control of two in the center line. And in the worst case scenario... I'm going to lose one of them. And then on my turn, my next activation, I have two already that I'm going to score. And then I can fight for a third or maybe a third and a fourth. Such a great Um, point. I think in the context of a a unit like the 501st, or even ARF troopers or any clone supports, if you push them up to really aggressively contest, you know, the center and then one of, you know, B1 or B3, often they are just going to get one shot. Yep. And then suddenly your position on the board is super weak and yeah. you've you've lost a lot of pressure with those units. And so, yeah, it depends a lot on the faction that you're playing. I think my general advice is if you're playing Galactic Republic uh, and you pull su- their supports as your first activation, you are probably just reserving that because they really want to be going with a primary to hold down one of the wings or even a secondary, you know, like a, a Rex or a Snips to push a primary forward and then flip yep. one point and sort of position for a little bit longer game. See, the problem I think with this idea, and then Sam can jump in, is that I think that what people are going to read is they're like, you're telling me I'm going to spend a force point to reserve like the 501st or something like that. And I think, well, actually that's a bad example because the 501st is bad and you just shouldn't be running them. But let's say like the example is like the Republic Commandos or the 212, where it's like handmaidens. Best example. Yep. So you got the handmaidens, and it's like you're telling me I should spend a force point to reserve this unit, who is not even my strongest activation, right? Like, and the problem is, is that I think that there is this temptation to say, like, well, I've got the unit, I don't want to spend my precious resources in order to do something suboptimal. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to maybe push forward as much as I can, or maybe even maybe you don't push forward, right? Like maybe you just kind of waste the activation and then just 
hope that you can take the tempo back. I think what people are most of the time planning to do is push up a little bit and maybe hopefully they can force their opponent to overcommit in order to wound those units. The problem is, is it doesn't take that much resources to wound them if you're pushing them I that think far forward. I think it's really context dependent. Like I think yeah. if you're playing Kenobi, uh, that reserve on a support is free, right? Great point. Because you want to be reserving somebody before you flip Kenobi because then Kenobi is going to bump them either to the top or the bottom of your deck, your choice. Yep. And then get his free jump, uh, or your, you know. So if you're playing Kenobi, I think that's a pretty free reserve. Like you can just do it and not feel bad about it. Yep. Uh, when I was playing Mace Anakin, like you really kind of want to save that reserve slot so that if you pull Anakin before, you know, Ahsoka or Mace or Pons can push him forward so that he's in range to do something on his activation. Yep. In that case, it's a little bit more feels bad, man. However. I, do, I, I have found more success doing a thing where I'm sort of like, hey, I will maybe contest one centerline objective with a clone trooper on the wings at range, you know, pretty far back, and then just position the other one to be in good range for coordinated fire for a future activation, but yeah. so that they're out of a reasonable threat range. And that is still not a great activation, but that is that is what I was talking about earlier when it's like Mace Anakin forces you into some lower like quality activations in order to tee up your spikes. I think yeah. Kenobi and his whole game plan is very much you know oriented around like how do I how do I make sure that I have control over how the order that my things activate and so they're activating them the right way. But I think that there is more potential than than you might think in the opportunity to just like sit down and say hey. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to position my clone troopers for a coordinated fire and not worry about being contesting more than one point with them. Again, it's very context dependent and depends on the matchup and the state of the rest of the table and all of that. Um, but yeah. we have spent a lot of time on this one. Sam, what would you <laughs> want to say? You're, you're right. And I think you're that these gen, these are excellent guidelines to follow with Republic characters. You can probably, when you're playing... <sighs> Uh, separatists, you can you're much more free to contest the middle. Like Absolutely. you have like Duke, who's essentially a two character activation that you can put Duke on the middle and put a Magna Guard on a far point. Um, yep. you know, so you have a lot more. Or if you're playing Ob two, Ob two is another great unit to put on the middle. Yep. That so you're going to have some depending on what characters you're bringing, your options are going to be different. But as a general rule of thumb for Republic supports, that's yep. what I would do most of the time. Yeah, if you're the beatdown, you by all means go contest the middle, and enforce your opponent to fight you there because you are well equipped to do that. Yeah. If if you're not a beatdown list, then you can't try to do that because you'll just lose, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is really worth thinking about is kind of how you position for future struggles. Um, yes. And and that and. One of the things that I think it's overlooked in this conversation, I, I forget where that really great article was that kind of analyzed all of the percentage points, the likelihood of different Bombad points tactics. being yeah, active at different things. One of the things that I think gets overlooked when you're looking at those percentages is that those are not strictly one out of six random, but it's a random card and then whoever lost the previous struggle gets to pick the best one for them. And so because those things come in pairs, you have to think about it a little bit differently. I was looking at these cards specifically to sort of say like, hey, how do we glean some insights there? 
what the big call out that I noticed is that all three cards for struggle two have one layout where the A1 point, which is the top left corner from the first player's perspective, and is active. And on the other one, the C3 point, which is the bottom right from the first player perspective is active. So if you are going to lose struggle one, as long as you're controlling one of those two points, no matter what card gets flipped, you're going to be able to pick a layout where you already have one point that's controlled. Great point. And um, similarly, if you're about to win struggle one, one of the things that you want to think about is that those points are more valuable. And if you can control at least one of them while also winning the struggle, that can force your opponent into pick having worse options for what they pick and it, it weakens the advantage they get from being able to pick right sure. struggle three is a little bit more randomized that the 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 struggle probabilities are a little bit more evenly distributed um the one exception there is that the center point b2 is active in four of the six options but those four options are contained within exactly two cards so one of the three cards does not have the center point active on either side. Such so that means point. that the center point is the most valuable one to contest going into the third struggle, but it is also the case that like in one out of three you know, games, the wrong card is going to flip, and so controlling the center is not going to matter. So in general, like there are other probabilities to trying to math that out, but I don't know that like the cognitive load of trying to process those gains is worth you know, the effort that you go to to try to maximize around them. I think if you remember that, like, the corners, bottom right, top left, from the first player perspective, are more valuable in the second struggle, and that the, the center point, and that the center point never pops up in the second struggle ever, and that in the third struggle, the center point is the most valuable. But in general, like, you just want to have bodies on points, because the more places where you have presence, the more constrained you are you know of option you're creating for your opponent and the more opportunity you're creating for yourself to be in a good position um there's nothing that feels bad quite so much as like your rear point when a when a struggle flips and just not being able to contest it reasonably for a round or two until you get the right activation that pops up yeah um the last thing I think is worth thinking about is that support units, I think, make good targets um, in terms of your attacks. This is not always the case, but in general, I think they are easier to wound, you know, Magna Guards aside, and they are reduced more in effectiveness when they are wounded. Again, Magna Guards being the exception. Yep. So all other things being equal, you know, if you're going to contest a point in put damage on a unit and try to push them off you're you're often better off going for a support over a secondary or a primary yeah. unless you have other things you know if you're playing anakin that's different the other thing that sways into that is that supports often benefit a great deal from synergy with secondaries and with primaries more so than how the kind of internal list synergy that primaries and secondaries have across the list and so being able to put the pressure on the supports, I think, is often just a as a blanket. Like that's that is a good way to go if you don't have any other preferences to prefer something else. Yeah. Well, I think a, another thing thing about supports really are supports for your other units in that by taking out your 
them makes your opponent's primaries and secondaries less effective. Like yep. Kalani's turn is a lot less effective when B1s are wounded. And Sabe's turn is a lot less effective when Hadmaidens are wounded. Great point. So, you know, these the support units kind of can amplify the power of your primaries and second of your opponent's primaries and secondaries. So wounding them also takes away the efficiency of their other units. It also can like if you have if your supports are wounded, that often makes them a more likely or a better Shatterpoint target because it allows you to put them back into play and have them contest points. And so by wounding supports, in some ways you are encouraging your opponents to shy away from the big primary Shatterpoint actions that they want to take to kind of for maximum impact because you're sort of forcing them into a overall lower impact activation because that's going to be better for them in the long term. And so you, you're you're creating kind of a, a more difficult choice by targeting those supports. That's a really great point. Yeah, that's an excellent That's why we point. should all play Padme, so that uh, when people target <laughs> our supports, they're just like, ah, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, is I, I am super stoked for Mace Padme for the very reason that I think that like everything we're talking about here in terms of being able to like leverage the you have Mace, who is a hyper carry, who's going to do a ton of damage, and just he is also a very difficult figure to bring down. He's you're fine to commit him up early, even if he's not wounding someone, just because he's very tough to remove. And once he's in that forward position, he's so threatening. Um, you've got Padme and the Handmaidens, who seem very strong and just able to kind of leverage durability in a way that other units can't, in terms of being able to still contest spots when wounded. It just seems like it's got a lot of really interesting. Um, kind of answers right now. Absolutely, so. yeah. I, and I think that they're, they're, all of these things together, I think that the, the big takeaway is you need to find opportunities to build up advantages that are not just scoring. And, yes. and, and that is from both sides of the table. If, if you're ahead, if you're the beatdown and you're already winning, I think often the temptation is to sort of, well, how do I close this out as quickly as possible? And I think some lists do genuinely want to do that. But I think that there are other lists that are pretty happy to sort of say, like, I have an advantage. I might as well slow things down and try to grind this out so that I can build up more of an attrition advantage and maybe close this out in two struggles, as opposed to, like, rapid scoring all the way through. I know, Sam, you have done that against me with Separatists, where sometimes you're like, hey, I'm controlling a bunch of points. You know, I, I've got four points. I don't really need to fight for the fifth. And so I might as well, like, just start shooting some of your units on the deployment line because yeah. they haven't activated yet, because I can, and because that's going to impact your ability to do anything when they do activate. Yeah, no, that, that's an excellent point, that oftentimes when you know that you're ahead, just kind of focus to, to getting the, those advantages. It's like, okay, can I, like, shove and pin somebody that's not by a point? Yeah, do that. Because then that character is going to come up in the second struggle since you're so far ahead. And they're going to be like, ah, I have to reserve them because I can't score anything with them. That is so brutal. Yeah, it really is. And I I think it's it's kind of where um, this this touches on something that we've been talking about in the Slack quite a bit, or at least that that I have been yelling about in the Slack, which is that I think the struggle that the 501st have is that they're a unit that is really great in that context. They're really great once you are already ahead at at kind of preserving your lead and constraining your opponent's options because they get a pin on that first step of their 
combat tree and yep. because their coordinated fire strain kind of limits your opponent's reactive opportunities so yep. they're really great at helping you preserve that lead but they're not good at helping you gain that lead in the first place nope. and i think that there's just not a ton of room in the game for a unit that is solely focused on like forecasting into the future at the expense of the present right now yeah. i think that there are some opportunities to play that way but the game really rewards more flexible units and units that can do things right now or in the short term over things over units that are you know forecasting into the future yeah i think it's a, the case like with the 501st because the problem with them the problem with the clones is that in order to leverage their coordinated fire they it's not that obviously like they they shouldn't be on the front but you want them to project as much of a range of threat as possible with things like coordinated fire i mean also just in terms of leveraging their range right like you want them to be able to move into a spot where they can threaten a lot but the problem is is that where like the 501st is a good example where they need to be in order to project threat is just a place where they're going to die and then they can't they're not quite good enough i think at punishing kind of like at, like doing the slow meat grinder in, in order to slow down your opponent and like once like because the idea what what matt is saying is you're going to give up some early tempo in order to leverage that time to you know win later in the struggle right whereas the 501st they're plenty fine at giving up tempo right <laughs> but they're not going to be able to do the thing that you need to do in in terms of wounding or in terms of even shoving right like their shove is the third step on their tree with their terrible expertise is not just not working so the time where it's like okay it's time for me like they have come up i need to start pushing back they're just not like they're a perfect unit at demonstrating why that like they're not able to do that right so i mean i think that the basic calculus there is that what the separatists do really really well is they have supports whose job it is to move forward and contest points yes and their leaders and their secondaries job is to kind of provide ancillary support for them yep either like standing right next to them in the case of dooku or like kraken and kalani like their job is to kind of hold your rear points totally. and to then project threat forward and they, and have, they, and think, they have such good threat from from like the, the mid back line right yeah like in large part because they can project threat from where the supports are right yeah, exactly. um, yeah. and i think that like where i have found the most success playing galactic republic has been when I'm using the clone troopers on my back line. So their job is to kind of position and reposition along the back line to then provide a coordinated fire forward into the center line and be a little bit flexible. I think that Mace really helps a lot with this because he gets to move himself and another unit. Yep. You know, Pons moves another unit. And so there's a lot more emphasis on like kind of doing small shuffle repositioning so that like I, I really saw this playing Mace Anakin where it was like, okay, it's Mace Anakin and Ahsoka's job to fight in the center line. And then the, the job for the clone troopers is to kind of get in some chip damage, add coordinated fire to make life easier for my big hitters when they go in. Yep. And then to sort of be unwounded and sit on the back line so that when the struggle flips, I don't have to worry about retreating back into that space again. Yeah. And and, and I think that it's just, it's kind of this interesting inversion. And I think that part of the inherent advantage that, that Separatists have in the early game is that because it's their supports contesting the midline, they just have more bodies. Yeah. And so they don't necessarily have to spike damage or hit their specific triggers. They just have to like have more people than you, more bodies than you, and they can do it. 
Yeah. And, you, the, one one thing about this is this actually kind of confirms my experience. Like when I've played, so I've played Mace a few times, three times, four four times, and mm-hmm. every time it has been Mace kind of sol- is soloing the opposing list. When I've when I've had success with it, Mace is soloing the opposing list because he is so difficult to bring down, and there is so honestly little reward for wounding him because yeah. it doesn't really increase your force cost, and you're shatter pointing him every time, and so you know yeah. like. He's a terrible target to wound, but if he's the one who's like up in your grill and soloing the opponent's list, uh, like he is, he is kind of contesting that midline all on his own, not really. And then like you've got your 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 secondaries and your supporting units are kind of rotating away from where the enemy is, right? Like hoping that you can do that with like the point spread. So that's like one reason why Mace is, I think, such an incredible figure and is giving the Republic exactly what they need in terms of the long term to survive. And thrive. Yeah. Well, and Kenobi does that too, right? In a in a similar yes. way, right? He doesn't yes. have the spike damage that like Anakin or Mace does, but he nope. he can move up to a point, he can push people off, and yep. then he can just sort of shrug off damage and then like jump out of harm's way or maybe get some cheeky heals in or that kind of a thing. And so absolutely, like like really, I think the summary of this is like you want to understand what your list is good at and what your list is not good at, and understand the same things for your opponents so that you can try to pressure their weaknesses with your strengths. And, and I think that part of what we're seeing in terms of the general struggle for players that are trying to win after having lost the first struggle is that the, the game does not, is not necessarily positioned to make that a super plausible thing, unless you are very, very comfortable with, like, unless you're very knowledgeable about the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which are, we're just just not this early on it's also one more thing sam before you were say the thing you were going to say is that bar bar guest i don't know how he pronounces weird handle but his his he has come up so he is like the partisan defender for the republic and for the 501st and like god bless him because hope springs eternal i mean he's wrong like hardcore wrong but he is like he he is at the very least like he, he as he has said he's like this is the hill he's willing to die on and we're like you are dying on the bodies of the 501st. Like, you will die on that hill with your clone. Somebody's got to die on that hill, and I'm glad that it's not me. Uh, uh, amen. So, but his theory is, like, when he has had success running the clones, and I don't know how many games he's played or whatever, and I also haven't had a chance to test this, but it is very much like what we've talked about, where he's talked about building what he calls the castle, and the castle is is that you are effectively cornering your clones and only fighting over like one one quarter not really but like one quarter of the board like that is your kill box kind of a thing and it's forcing your opponents to come into you and so like that is his theory i know the problem is, is that is extremely dependent on the flipping of um, yep. priority tokens and objectives and everything like that and so I, I don't think it's one of those things that oh like this is going to work but that kind of illustrates this principle his idea is that my clones are defending this like corner this area my my awesome primaries because republic has awesome primaries are going out and they're you know doing their thing uh, but i don't have to that's like how i'm going to win the attrition battle i'm going to hold this spot and you know punish the opponents who comes in so we haven't had i haven't had a chance to really test it but i think that's an interesting kind of illustration of this principle about leveraging time so yeah in my conversations with him it kind of feels like a different way of saying the same thing that i've been trying that's a little bit more slow play and it's like okay i'm i'm going to contest fewer spaces to just slow down the pace of the game i think that the nature of the way that the objectives move around the board and, you know, the priority, you know, 
objective and those kinds of things really do limit your ability to just lock down and say like Agreed. okay you know i am just going to fight hard for these four of the nine objective points and just let the rest go like yeah. i kind of think that that's not really uh too much of an option because of the way that the objectives work but i yeah. think that there is a general principle where you're sort of like okay i'm i'm playing for less for stronger control over less of the board so as to make it difficult for my opponent to score points on momentum and to yep. make it difficult for opponents to flip points. And so they will gain a slow scoring advantage, but I am hopefully building up a, an attrition advantage while they're doing that. And, and that attrition advantage will tick over, hopefully by before the end of the first struggle. I actually ran into exactly that in one of my games against JK, where I slow played the first struggle and then actually won because uh, he was struggling so much to wound any of my units, yep. and I had maxed out the momentum track from wounds plus just getting free ones from the struggle being on his side, that eventually I was able to tip it over and bring the struggle token one onto my side and win the first struggle that way. And so, like, I think it's just about the pace of the game. Yeah. Well, I think that's and right. I think that with the soul play struggle, that that is your primary goal, is to win the first struggle. But if yep. you if you don't, I think that these principles are exactly what you want to be doing with those lists to win struggles to win three. You know <laughs> that this this so slow play thing really because um, some lists like the one of the things with clones is they don't have all that besides Padme don't have all that like I'm going to move a thousand people around the board on every yep. single yep. activation so they yep. can't have these massive swings that the separatists can. Yep. Yep. And that in re keeps them playing a slower pace game. So they're they're really forced to play the grind. If there is one thing that I think you need to be thinking about if you are playing a list that is not Vader Grievous or even, you know, like these SEPs kind of more aggressive lists, is you need to be thinking so soon in struggle one, can I win this? Can I slow play it enough and get enough of an attrition advantage that I can win struggle one? Because if not, you need to really be thinking about how you're going to win struggle two. And you also need to desperately be thinking about how you're going to win struggle three, right? Because you might be able to easily take struggle two if you get a lucky flip, but you need to be thinking about that so soon, like a lot sooner than you think is going to be the case. If they get a three point swing and they wound one of your, you know, one of your units, you should immediately think, okay, it is very unlikely that me running the Republic is going to be able to, to turn this back. So what am I going to do to win struggle two? And then especially to win struggle three, like, how do I, how, what do I need to do in terms of positioning? Right. Cause you, there's no point in expending further resources to win struggle one. So start thinking about struggle two immediately. Yep. And, and a big part of that is that you, you have to be contesting enough that you can actually slow things down, right? Yeah. If you just seed the whole board and your opponent is scoring four points or five points on their turn, you're going to lose the struggle in two activations and you're not going to have enough time to build up that advantage. But Great point. And I think maybe the other way to be thinking about this is from the beginning of the game, you want to be thinking about, like, am I trying to score fast and apply pressure that way? Yeah. Or am I trying to apply pressure via damage that I can then roll into a quick accumulation of points in the back half of the match. Excellent you know, in, Excellent And, you, you know, it, one of the games that I played against Will was very much like, I lost, I got dumped on pretty hard in the first struggle, um, but I was playing Mace Anakin, and I won the second struggle in, like, two activations, because I, I scored three, and then I scored four, 
and then and then I I think it was three activations, right? And so yeah. suddenly it, it spun very quickly, and then the third struggle was a very even grind that really came down to you know who got the right activations in the right order, yeah. um, and was able to leverage that. So like I think that you you are always playing for the third struggle, and I think the biggest thing to think about is like it is okay if you lose struggle one because the game has kind of a built-in parachute that's going to say like you have to get pretty far behind to lose the first two struggles. And yeah. that happens. And totally. that's usually a testament to like a, a really strong play from your opponent. But, and, and usually it's a case where you've overreached and trying to fight for the first struggle that you then kind of lose so much ground. And so really what, what both players are playing for is to build up the advantage to have in the final struggle in order to win the game. Yeah, agreed. Right. Yeah, I think this is also something we're going to be talking about a lot as we play more and as we see more lists. I mean, we're still seeing archetypes get defined and refined. And so as this happens, like we're going to have ideas as to how does what does control actually look like in Shatterpoint? What does attrition yeah. actually look like? Because it might be the case, I hate to be the, I'm not, I don't hate to be the one to say this. It is likely the case that Republic, as currently constituted, Padme aside, doesn't have like the tools in order to like win that kind of attrition struggle, right? It just might not. I'm not saying it does. It yeah. might not. And so, so as we see this happen more, I think that we're going to have a lot more interesting conversations about, because I think about this like with how IA worked and how X-Wing works in terms of like tempo and positioning and, and advantage it was always kind of in a state of flux with regards to what lists were doing well and how those lists won games. And so it's going to be a really fun thing to continue exploring. Yeah. Well, it's further complicated by the premier format too, because great point that because you are bringing four strike teams, you have to run them all at some point during an event. Yep. Um, one of the things that can happen is that you're going to sit down across from your opponent and you're going to see their four strike teams. And then you're both going to blindly pick which ones are there. And so lining up a super hard counter is going to be tricky. But yep. I, I suspect that one of the really popular, you know, premier th theory crafting ideas is going to be like, you have a general solid all comers, you know, two strike teams that are like, hey, I they feel great into 80% of the metagame. And I want to play them most of the time. But the matchups that they struggle against, I'm going to take another two squads so that, you know, like, oof, when I'm really worried about my Vader Grievous matchup, like maybe I throw Dooku Ahsoka in there yep, to just totally. sort of say, yep, uh, I have a, an option to pull there. And the downside is like, well, if you never match up against them, you still have to play them at some point. And so you have Good to measure point. that against like, like there's going to be a lot of reading into what can potentially happen. And I think there's just a lot of opportunity there to be able to consistently play different squads at at a different like at their optimal moments because of how the premier format is designed yeah i think it's a really cool that's a great point awesome all right well we want to thank everyone for listening we've had a this one's been a little bit of a doozy but this is just i mean this is the thing that i am learning the most about i will say so sam has beat me every time we've played because he's a cuss um but like one thing i that sam taught me a lot as we were playing, I mean, Sam did have like games on me, right? Like when we were figuring it out. And one thing that I learned that I could see that Sam understood quite quickly 
was if he was going to lose struggle one, how to leverage himself for struggle two and for struggle three. And that's like what I've just noticed from all the good players that I've been playing against and as we've all been improving. And so that's something that I, if you don't find yourself winning or if you don't find yourself really understanding why someone is winning or not, I would encourage you to think real hard about how you're positioning for struggles that you're not going to win so that you can win struggles in the future. How you're leveraging the resources that you have in the future. This kind of ties into our economy idea. How you're leveraging the resources that you have in the future now, especially being time. So everyone join the Slack, rate and review the podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great week.